This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Every once in a while something happens internationally and you go, mm, uh-oh, what's that going to mean to the pumps? We haven't had one of those in a while. But we had one over the weekend. When you see drone attack in Saudi Arabia, uh-oh, what's that going to mean to gas prices? There was a temporary cut to the oil production being done in Saudi Arabia. 5.7 million barrels. I don't I don't understand five is that a lot? Would 50 million barrels be more? Is is 5.7 million barrels a lot? Well, if you look at Saudi Arabia, it's a big oil producer. That's about half of their capacity. So that is quite a bit. What does that mean? Well, joining us right now is a man who can help us understand, energy analyst Dan McTagg. Dan, when we do look at the drone attack from the weekend and what happened and the price we pay at the pumps, how are the two going to mix? Well, I think it uh, means that we the good days are behind us and this sort of... Uh back and forth, uh, you know, tug of war uh, that we're seeing on energy markets that basically say, hey, we don't care about fundamentals. We're more concerned about trade between the U.S. and China. Well, that's all over. Uh, what's really coming into play now is fundamentals, and that's supply and demand, especially on the oil side. And when you have the third largest uh, producer of oil in the world, you know, now basically saying, hey, we can't uh, – we're not up to scratch. We won't be able to meet our commitments. It does uh, put upward pressure both on oil and gasoline prices. Now, while everyone is suggesting that that could mean, you know, several cents a liter, uh, a couple things to keep in mind. One, it won't happen until Wednesday. And two, it probably won't be more than a couple of pennies net. Uh, that is wholesale. I have to say that because, as we know here in the London market, what is price in the morning is not the price in the evening. And people are going to come back to me and say, well, prices went up 12 cents a liter, not two. What are you talking about? Well, we know gasoline stations play of uh, you know of um, trying to uh, compete with each other and what I call gas bar shenanigans. So net increase two cents a liter. The news, however, is not good if you're diesel. That's going to be up five or six cents a liter. And the main reason is we're shifting back to winter blends of gasoline. This is a real thing. From April fifteenth till uh, September fifteenth, you pay about four cents more, and from September fifteenth until April fifteenth, with winter gasoline cheaper to make, you pay four cents less. So uh, that's why we're getting a bit of a break here, as opposed to seeing prices increase. It's a happy coincidence. Okay, all right, but at the same time, we could have seen kind of gas prices drop. Is that what you're saying? And now we're just not going to see them rise as much. Yeah, I mean, we would have probably on, uh, been on course to a four cent decrease uh, as of Wednesday. Uh, but that, of course, has now been upended by the reality that, uh, you know, uh, global oil markets are panicked, uh, as they should be, uh, because uh, one of one of the key things is no longer producing. So for that reason, it's pretty clear as to why there is a problem, and that problem is now going to, uh, you know, first make itself available and, and hit a lot of other economies, not ours, to, to the extent that we just happen to have something happening at the same time that offsets much of the increase. But if this goes longer, Mike, if we're looking at, uh, you know, conflict, uh, conflagration or U.S. responding, a military move on Iran uh, or the, the Saudi Arabian facility can't get back on its feet, 
then I think we're in real trouble. Uh, we could be seeing prices move a whole lot higher than what we are today, but that's not for another couple of weeks. Okay, we're talking with Dan McTagg. You can follow Dan on Twitter at Gas Price Wizard, and he, of course, is an energy analyst, and we're looking at Saudi Arabia not being able to do what they're normally able to do, what that means at the pumps, winter gas comes in, so that, that at least rescues us a little bit. So th- when we look at, at conflicts, we've been through things like like this before, how much can a conflict, if the U.S. decides to get involved, something like that, how much can that impact what happens and, and how does it impact it? Does it impact the market? Well, it does impact markets. We're seeing gasoline up about 15 cents a gallon on uh, U.S. benchmark um, uh, norms for the day. So that means uh, they're going to see an increase of both 14, 15 cents a gallon over the next several days. Uh, we traditionally see that, you know, uh, you, mu- you multiply it by the Canadian dollar, the exchange rate, which is about 133, and that's not very good because, you know, normally when oil prices go up, our Canadian dollar strengthens versus the U.S. greenback. The fact is, Mike, because we've decided in this country that it's cool and trendy and cute to block pipelines, of course, I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek, it means your Canadian dollar is actually losing value. That's, that's pretty serious. Uh, it, it means that you will get the impact of much higher prices down the road. But for now... Uh, I think for most producers, uh, it may be good news. Unfortunately, for Canadian producers of oil who can't sell more oil, even if the high price is higher, uh, it's a it's a sort of a mixed uh, mixed blessing in the sense that yeah, you're making more money, but unfortunately, you can't get more of that product out. The world desperately needs more of Canada's oil, but Canadians have decided to uh, uh, you know bend towards climate change and hating fossil fuels, and as a result of that, we're not doing as well. And that doesn't seem to be changing. So it can can you foresee a a day? I guess maybe we wait till after the election when <laughs> when something like yeah. that does change. Uh, I don't think it's going to change at all. I think Canadians, uh, whether they and I, I don't want to get political, but if they're going to vote NDP, they're going to vote Liberal, they're going to vote Green, or they're going to vote Bloc. You're voting for the same thing. So uh, get ready for higher prices because it's not just Mike. Something you and I have not talked about. Forget the carbon tax and the fact that it's going to be a colder year and you're going to be paying a lot more than the rebate. You're now looking at uh, Ottawa bringing in with the, the Four Amigos, uh, the Clean Fuel Standards Act. That's likely to send gasoline prices much higher. I would expect that by 2022, uh, conservatively, another 30 cents a litre between the carbon tax and the clean fuel standards. So, uh, you know, the good days are behind us. Uh, be very careful in October 21st who you vote for. You may not be able to afford their policies. Dan, really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, and have a great day. Dan McTagg, energy analyst. So we should have seen things actually drop this week. Not going to happen. Last week bugged me. It bugged me a lot. Because while I wasn't in conversation with Mitch Marner through any of what was going on with his contract situation. I know who Mitch Marner is, and it it just bugged me. He got caught up in a lot of different things. And now we're getting more and more details that do come out that need to be highlighted because we're looking at a guy who, yes, was going through a contract negotiation. He was a restricted free agent. But I want to tell you a story about Mitch Marner. When he was a junior-age player, he played for the London Knights. He included a 93 that he wore with the London Knights in his contract total. You know, Sidney Crosby did an 87 one time when he signed a deal. And Mitch Marner was about 16 years old 
In fact, he was 16 years old. He was a rookie, and he was one of the only rookies on that London Knights team. And so a lot of times the rookies are the ones that do some cleanup stuff, and it's a little different now. You know, Everybody kind of joins in. But the rookies will make sure that they're kind of a, the last ones in and they're you know cleaning up, they're bringing the garbage bag out, everybody had to do it when they were a rookie, that kind of thing. So Mitch Marner did that basically by himself. The job that could have gone to a whole lot of guys just went to him. And Mitch was as excitable a guy then as he is now. There was that clip in his rookie year in the National Hockey League where in the third period, he's standing up at the bench, just like a minor hockey player, waiting to get back on the ice. No NHLer does that. They sit down. And there he was standing at the bench, and people made a big deal of this. That's just him. He's waiting to get back out on the ice. This is no different than playing peewee. He's just playing the game he loves. And so we were driving back from Sault Ste. Marie, and one movie had been watched, and then another movie had been watched, and the game had been at 7 o'clock in Sault Ste. Marie, so it ended at 10. We were due to get back about 5.30 in the morning, somewhere around there. And so guys started falling asleep, and Mitch was still talking, talking, talking to whoever was around him, and you could hear his voice above everything else. And suddenly, somebody yelled from the back, Hey, Marner, go to sleep. And Mitch yells back, I can't. I've had two sprites. That's the kind of guy that he still is. You know, he's he is that innocent guy. And he's always wanted to play for the Maple Leafs. And so when the news story came out last week that Darren Dreger had, that Mitch Marner had turned down an average annual value of $11 million a year for seven or eight years, and you saw some Leaf fans on Twitter trying to get the hashtag greed going, or they were saying Mitch Marner used to be my favorite player, or they were knocking him for this and that. That's one of those things that you think, this this is just a guy caught up in a situation. And then there was the story of Mitch being out walking his dog and 13-year-old kids are yelling at him from across the street about not having signed a contract. And then the very next day, he signs a contract. And then everything's changed. Oh, Mitch is my favorite player again. Oh, playing the parade. That stuff bugs me because that stuff gets to those players. You know, if you want to tweet about how greedy somebody's being or whatever it is, you have every right to do it, I guess. But I hope you come off looking like the ass that you look like when you do it. Because now we're seeing from Mitch and from his agent, Darren Ferris, that there had been offer sheets. There had been two of them that Darren Ferris said existed. Other teams had come and said, look, we'll give you this much money. You just sign this offer sheet and the Leafs will get compensation while we take you away. And Mitch Marner didn't even want to consider it because he wanted to play for the Maple Leafs. And I'm glad that story has come out. I'm really happy that story has come out. Because that illustrates more of who Mitch Marner is than anything that was going on and anything that was being said before his contract was finally signed. And I worry for Leaf fans because there's a real chance that they do well this year. There's a really good chance. I think if they're going to win a Stanley Cup, this is the year. And I think you're seeing the team make moves that suggest they believe this is the year. And it's it's a long road. It's a tough road. And I don't know if the way that Leafs Nation acts is ready for it. All right. 
Craig Needles is still here with us. Craig, you make no bones about it that you are a Maple Leafs fan. You have followed this team. You're very knowledgeable about this team. When you look at the prospects for this team, what do you see in front of you for this year? I think that, to me, it's hard to find a team that has a significantly or even a better chance to win the Stanley Cup. doesn't mean they will. What it means is typically the NHL is so close to the top that it's really a crapshoot. There's going to be seven or eight teams that have about the same chance to win every year anyway, and I think that the Leafs are going to be in that group of seven or eight teams. Now, you have seen on Twitter the same things the rest of us have Mm -hmm. seen on Twitter. You've seen how Leaf fans act. Do you think that irrationality is just a couple of people making a lot of noise, or, or is this something that is just part of being a Leafs fan? Yeah, I think it's a couple of people making a, a, a lot of noise, and that that happens. Uh, now, p- part of the, the the passion of being a Leaf fan obviously can be troublesome from the perspective of uh, there's a lot of folks that uh, really get bent out of shape about certain things, but that's just the way that goes. I, I, I feel bad that Marner got that kind of heat. I've got no problem with him saying hey, this is what I'm worth, and this is what I think I should get paid, and they negotiate. That's part of this. There's negotiation. Do I think that some of the asks from his side were a little bit off-kilter with uh, uh, what actually is uh, is going on in the NHL right now? I would say yes. But uh, there, there's nothing wrong with starting negotiation with asking high. I've got no problem with that. I've got no problem with how uh, uh, Marner himself has, has handled this. I have no problem with how the Leafs handled this. It's uh, a more expensive deal than some people thought was going to uh, wind up being the uh, the end result here. And I think some people got a little bit uh, out of joint because of that. And I think the people were still a little bit uh, out of joint because of what happened with William Nylander last year, which, again, I think was ridiculous. He's just asking for a number of dollars that he thinks is uh, is appropriate for, uh, for playing hockey. So they're going to be tight to the cap this year, but I think it's going to be a really good team yeah i like what this team is shaping up to be because even though you'll get people saying ah look you take austin matthews and mitch marner and john Tavares, and you put those contracts together that's a massive number and then you add in william nylander and it's it's basically about 40 million dollars that mm-hmm. they're spending on four players yeah but this team is constructed and you look at the bottom six forwards i think they're going to be a key this year but there's some real good talent there there are people there who i think are going to take on the role that they're being asked to have like Jason Spezza and I this is the this is a team you look at and you say you know like you pointed out anything can happen injuries can happen but this is a team that has every chance mm-hmm. to not just go far to win it all yeah every single chance to 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 win the whole thing and it just shows you that you can get on a run and all of a sudden go and do that. St. Louis Blues in January were in last place. In June, they were Stanley Cup champion. Uh, it, it's all about getting hot at the right time and, and, and having a little bit of injury luck, a little bit of puck luck, too. The St. Louis Blues played a double overtime game in Game 7 of the second round. There's a, that, their season looks a lot differently if the Dallas Stars score one more goal in that Game 7. People think about that season a lot differently. So it just shows you how close the margins are in the NHL when you're talking about the very, very top teams. The Leafs will be among those very, very top teams. Craig, you pay a lot of attention as well to salary cap Mm -hmm. and to salaries. Do you believe that a team is spending their money the way that they need to, especially when they're going after a championship, if they are wrapping up as many dollars as the Toronto Maple Leafs have in four forwards, does that matter, or should you be looking and saying, "Well, one of those should have been a defenseman, or one of those should be a goalie"? Or 
There's more than one way to make an omelet, is what I would say to that. If you look at the Pittsburgh Penguins model, they had a couple of very, very high-paid stars. Uh, and then they had some guys filling out the bottom of the roster that were uh, you know, on rookie contracts, not particularly well-paid. And they won the Stanley Cup two years in a row. Washington Capitals, same thing. You look at the St. Louis Blues model, I don't think they had anyone with a cap hit more than $7.5 million this past season, so it was kind of more spread out, and then they went and go and, and, and won the Stanley Cup. There's, there's more than one way to get things done. Uh, what I want the most out of everything is really, really good players. And Austin Matthews, John Tavares, Mitch Marner, really, really good players. So if you have those three guys in your team, you add in a Nylander and a Riley and a Muzz, and, and you have solid goaltending in Anderson, all of a sudden, you've got a real good team there. So uh, they will have to deal with some things as far as some unpleasant numbers, uh, especially if the U.S. TV deal doesn't really spike. After Morgan Riley's contract comes uh, comes up in 2022, that might be the first tough decision, or even Frederick Anderson's contract in 2021. There might be some tough choices to make there, but... I think that uh, what you want is good players. It'd be cool if they could assign Matthews for $9 million and Marner for 8 That's That would have been neat, but that just isn't the world we're in, and I'd rather sign those guys to $11 or, or, or $10.8 million deals as opposed to signing... Uh, you know, a couple extra guys that are making two million bucks here, two million bucks there, because the the problem contracts that you typically see in the NHL is when you're giving out big dollars to guys that are not stars. And Matthews and Marner are absolutely stars, so I've got no problem writing them big checks. It's a wild time. If we were to rewind time, we'd be talking about guys in the NHL making 7 or $8 million, thinking, well, that's the max. That's mm-hmm. as much as they can go. You fast forward a few years, and now it's the $11 million deal. And you're right. We could fast forward a couple of years. The U.S. TV money could spike, and we could be talking about guys making 13 15 Look at the NBA. Steph Curry made... Almost $40 million last year. Just him. And yet, that's okay. So you never know where this is going to head. And if sports continues to pull in more and more money, um, we might be talking about these contracts as a deal in a few years. I think the Connor McDavid contract, and he's the league's highest paid player, highest paid cap hit, $12.5 million. We're already at the point to me where that's a deal. Like, we're already at the point where he brings so much more to the table then, you know, find the two, uh, uh, the, the two middle of the road players that make six million bucks each. He may bring so much more to the table than those two guys. Uh, so, yeah, I'd pay Connor McDavid $12.5 million a year every chance that I could. Austin Matthews, 11 and a half. Yep, sure. Sounds good. Sign me up. You know, the, you, you, the stars are the guys that make the biggest difference. On the 31 Thoughts podcast this past year, Jeff Merrick and Elliot Friedman looked at something, and it was the idea that maybe somebody would walk up to Austin Matthews, I guess this was two years ago, mm-hmm. before he was signed, and would say, okay, we're going to offer you $18 million, and that somebody could be Arizona. And the reason they could justify it is Austin Matthews would mean so much more to them. It would mean a new arena. That new arena would mean condos around the arena. There would be so much money brought in bringing right. Austin Matthews back to his home state of Arizona and the team that he grew up cheering for in the Coyotes that you could do that. You could say, yeah, we spent a lot of money here, but that's how much he's worth. And that's what we're looking at. You look at the power that these guys mm-hmm. have in followers and endorsements and all of the things that it really is shifting in other sports, much the way it has gone in the NBA, where the players have the power.
I agree entirely. And the one other thing I think you have to consider for NHL players in comparison to the guys in the other sports. In the NFL, it truly doesn't matter. When it comes to marketability, it truly doesn't matter whether you're Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay, Wisconsin, Tom Brady in Boston, Massachusetts, or, you know, J.J. Watt in Houston, Texas. You're equally marketable no matter which of those places you're in, even small little Green Bay, Wisconsin. In the NHL, that's not true. And in the NHL, if you're looking for that off-ice revenue, there is way, way, way more if you're playing in Toronto or Montreal than any place else. And that, that's got to be a consideration for these guys, too, when they're signing these types of deals. But yeah, when, you, when it comes to Matthews, you're right. The Coyotes could have essentially, like, you know, we talk about franchise player, but he could have literally been the franchise player. They could, it just could have been all about him, and they could have justified spending every cent of the cap they could on Austin Matthews. They'll have to make that decision if they want to make it five years from now. I suspect that Austin Matthews will not become an unrestricted free agent five years from now, but stuff happens. Craig, thanks for the thoughts on this. Thank you, Mike. There is a big event happening this week in London. We'll find out just how many countries are going to be represented at this event, but we're talking about the world coming to London and doing so in the sport of squash. The Nash Cup kicks off today, as a matter of fact, and we're lucky enough to have with us in studio Jay Nash, Jay, you've been organizing this for years. It's a not-for-profit tournament. It invites people from all over the world. What is it like to even put this together? It's amazing. We always start as, on the next year as soon as the one year is done. So it, it never seems to go away. And suddenly we're here again and the pros start to arrive and the, and the members are all involved and the courts get filled. It is incredible how fast this tournament comes back around. Anyone who has put together any big event will know, yeah, every event takes huge work like this. You're coordinating things globally. How many countries are involved now? We have a record 25 countries represented this year. We've had 42 over the life of the tournament with over 200 pros involved, but uh, to have 25 showing up in one year is, is pretty remarkable. Are you booking flights? I, we do not book the flights, thank goodness. <laughs> it's, uh... We've got you going from Istanbul to Canberra, but don't worry, there isn't much of a layover in Australia for you. It'll be okay. All right, so you don't have to worry about that, at least. No, we just have to pick them up at whatever site they're arriving, whether it's Robert Q. Via or, uh, or London Airport. <laughs> wow. Well, let's talk about some of the countries and how far-reaching this has gone, because you really do get some of the best squash players in the world. We do. It's, uh, I mean, this year, everything from uh, from Australia to the Ukraine, uh, we're seeing Spain for the first time and Ireland. Uh, we have Scotland in there, lots of English, Egyptians, obviously Canada and the U.S. Many of them do train in the U.S., but some of these people literally got on a flight yesterday and have, uh, have arrived here. <laughs> now, do they start to find out about you and start to inquire about this tournament based on what you've been doing for all these years? Well, the PSA runs runs things overall, so it's sort of like the PGA in golf. It's a, it's a global organization. There's a central site they they book in two months in advance, and it's based on their on their world ranking. But our club does have quite a reputation for this tournament. Big crowds, lots of noise, lots of support. The players want to be here, and we've become known as one of the top stops on the tour globally. Nice. Jay Nash, in studio with us as we talk about the Nash Cup. So let's look at the calendar and how it's going to play out this week. Well, it all starts tonight with a barbecue at the club featuring uh, four of the top Western players who are coming to get the final spot in the men's draw. And then tomorrow you start with a draw of 16 for the men and a draw of 16 for the women, and it is single elimination right through. 
The, there's actually 24 in each draw. Eight get added on Wednesday night to the eight who get through tomorrow. And you work your way right down to the finals Saturday night with the, uh, with, with the women on at uh, 7.30 and the men on at 9. You mentioned as well that this does have great community support to it, or support to it. And you would think, well, no, but it's squash. They're, they're in the enclosed court, but you're able to come and watch. Not only can people come and watch, we, we're, we're fortunate to have uh, some very nice show courts. We house about 100 people watching live, but we also stream it live through the website. And no app, no download, there's no cost. So we have a global audience. Last year, 68 different countries represented 13,000 unique IPs. It, it, it has quite a reach. But from the community side, London has a very vibrant squash community, and they're, they're wildly supportive of this. It's fascinating to hear you say for free, because that's one of those things that anyone who puts on an event will kind of... Scratch their head over, okay, we, we want to stream this, but we also want to make a little money on this, and there are lots of services that will allow you to do that. What made you want to put it out there for everybody free of charge? This is really about giving people exposure to the sport. Squash is a phenomenal sport, rated as, as one of the best athletically in, in uh, anywhere uh, by Forbes. But a lot of people don't have exposure to it. So the ability to watch online for free, the ability to put it out there. The other side is these people, as we mentioned, are coming from 25 different countries. They need their family to be able to watch them and see what's going on and and know how they're doing. Because so many of their games are played not at home, but, but around the world. And this way, they can stay up late, get up early, whatever it happens to be. Some of them will be doing just that. It, it could easily be if they play at 7 at night, it's 5 in the morning in their home country. Absolutely. I mean, the games go right on till nearly 10. So in the European countries, you are well into the <laughs> wee hours of morning. <laughs> well, there'll be some sleepless nights, but it will definitely be worth the watch. Jay Nash with us in studio. The Nash Cup kicking off tonight and then continuing all this week with regard to squash players themselves when you look at because a lot of people will play squash like you say it's a fantastic activity to keep yourself in shape to get active it doesn't cost very much to get started up but at the same time you're looking at some of the best of the best in the world what separates a, an elite squash player from someone who's just pretty good and beats everybody on their home court it really is something to watch they they their skill on keeping the ball up and down the wall their shot control the they take so few steps to get to the ball. If you or I on the court, we're taking five, six steps to get from the center out to the side. They're there in two. And their anticipation of the ball is unreal. It's to the point now, because we draw such a, a group, you actually have to lower the tins by two inches. So if you and I were playing, we'd be playing with this 19-inch tin at the front of the court. These guys play at 17. I mean, we've all seen tennis matches that go on for five hours. If we let these guys play at 19 inches... It would just go on and on. The women are, are equally strong, and their ability to keep the ball within an inch of the wall and send it up and down is something to behold. For someone who isn't necessarily versed in squash rules, the tin. Is that what the, is the front tin? of the court, and it is it goes along the bottom. And it, it truly is tin. You hit that, it makes a lot of noise. But it means, unlike, say, racquetball, which in Canada is basically a dead sport, um, in racquetball, you're trying to hit the bottom and have the ball kick out. This keeps the ball a little higher, which means it's going to bounce no matter what. It may not bounce much okay. at 17 inches, but this gives you a moment to get up there and get keep the rally going. Oh, okay. All right. But the idea is to shorten the rallies with the way that you've transformed the tin? Well, at 19 inches, these guys and these girls can basically get to anything. So you have to lower it to 17, so at least a, a strong shot that catches a corner and nicks out flat, they're going to win with that. Um, we had cases in the early years with 19, with 19 inches where a game would go on for almost two hours. 
And uh, <laughs> that's a long time. Especially for the people in Europe waiting up. Absolutely. <laughs> With the difference between squash and racquetball, what even is the, the difference between the two sports? And what is it that's allowed squash to just say, yeah, we got this? Well, racquetball, again, there's no tin at the front. Your racket's a little shorter and the ball goes all over the place. Like squash, some people find it hard to follow the ball. The issue with racquetball was simply that the rallies were getting shorter and shorter. The better you were, the lower you hit the ball, the ball would come out flat. So at the top levels, you're dealing with one or two shots to a rally where, where squash goes on and on. Where people, the, the more bigger comparison may be to tennis for most people to understand. Squash, you get one serve versus two. If you hit the line, the ball's out versus in. And of course, you're sharing a court. So the physical side of the game is significantly different than, than say, tennis as a racket sport because you have to move around your opponent uh, in order to get to the ball. Can the opponent get in the way, the good, the good players? Or do they find a way to kind of pick? Absolutely. They, the body is used as a tool within the, within the game, but you have to clear for the opponent. You definitely cannot hit the ball back into yourself. Uh, there are referees. We bring them in from across the province. They they do a great job. And a player may ask for a let or a stroke based on the positioning of the other player and the way the ball moved. Hmm. Well, this is something to behold. If someone wanted to actually come and see it or just stream online, once again, how do we do that? So online, uh, nashcup.com, very simple. Uh, no, uh, no application is required, no download. You can watch it on any medium, and we will be live streaming effective tonight at uh, 5 o'clock with the Western players on court. Those who would like to come down to the club, uh, seats can be purchased through the website, and uh, there's a link there. There is standing room. We will be broadcasting to televisions. We ask that the uh, guests who come in for standing room, it's just 10 bucks um, to come in and see. It really is a great show. What we can't guarantee for the standing room is the is the quality of the view because obviously a closed court, glass back, it get, does get crowded in there. Definitely. Well, it's good that it gets crowded. Absolutely. And thank you for all the work that you put into this. This is a nonprofit event year after year. Absolutely. We we we, we basically what we bring in from the sponsorship, the tickets, everything else just goes into the purse. And for twelve years, we've been able to increase the purse, increase the caliber coming to London. This is the the second largest purse in Canada this year in squash, and our women's draw will be the strongest that the, we see in this country. That's phenomenal. Well, congratulations, Jay. Thank you for stopping by and talking about it with us. Enjoy the week. Thank you, Mike. Jay Nash in studio. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.